Now the story of a wealthy family who lost everything and the one son who had no choice but to keep them all together. It's arrested development. Anyong, welcome to I Made a Huge Mistake. I am your host, Darren, and with me today, I'm joined by one guest. Uh, you heard him first on the pilot episode, uh, and that is Patrick Hamilton. Hello, Patrick. Hello, I'm so glad to be here. And today we are going to be covering the finale of season two, uh, which on my DVD is called The Righteous Brothers, but for some reason everywhere else it's just called Righteous Brothers. So I don't know, you know, what the correct title is. Let's just stick with just calling it Righteous Brothers for the moment. It was it was first broadcast on April 17th, 2005. It's written by Mitch Hurwitz and Jim Vallali, and it was directed by Chuck Martin, who up until this point, had been a writer on the show. I don't know why they let him direct this one episode, but he directed this one episode, and it's the only episode of the show he directed, and it was also his only... It was his final involvement with the show. Um, he he went on to work on uh, The Ellen Show um, since then, so uh, I think that's the one where she's... That's her current show, her like talk show type thing. In 2005, so, yeah, I guess it might have been the first iteration of her daytime show. Rather than um, any of the, the sitcoms that uh, she tried. Um, this episode garnered an Emmy for Jim Vallely and Mitch Hurwitz. Uh, the show itself, of course, won um, the, the Best Comedy Emmy for Season 1. Um, and was nominated for both season two and season three. Uh, season one actually beat out Curb Your Enthusiasm, Everybody Loves Raymond, Sex and the City, and Will and Grace. Damn. Um, so that is that is quite a, that's quite a stacked competition um, for them to be uh, for them to be beating. Especially the Emmys because the, it's such a stodgy institution. It's not like the Golden Globes where they love to shake things up. Uh, they want to be movers yeah. and shakers over there, whereas Emmys are very staid. They they love to have streaks go on and on. You could go back to something like Frasier just winning and winning and winning. And so for them to actually shift to a, a freshman show actually speaks to the quality of the writing here. And this episode is like a perfect example of the very best Arrested Development can do. And this uh, this did, this won the Emmy, this actual episode. While the show didn't win for the second season, this actually did win. Obviously, um, the season had been cut short by four episodes, which is why this is airing in April and not May. Um, uh, I don't know what Fox did to those extra four weeks that they got, those extra four half hours. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Um, I, I don't know what I don't know what could have gone in those extra four ho half hours that would have got them more ratings or whatever. But you know they obviously decided to use them, um, you know, differently. The, the this episode obviously called Righteous Brothers. If you have the DVD, or, or I'm assuming um, on Netflix, I don't know if you can get the director's commentaries. Um, uh, not that I'm aware of Netflix. Yeah. No, I'm, sh I'm I'm sure the director's commentaries must be somewhere, but or cast commentary should I say? Uh, because obviously this is one, this episode ha has a, a cast commentary. It's been a while since I've listened to it, so I'm not going to make any reference to what they say in it. Uh, but I do recall them being quite mad at the fact that Fox didn't seem to understand how to um, market this particular program, and the the kind of the the blooper reel for this season has a rant from uh, David Cross <laughs> where he talks about how. 
Fox just couldn't find a way to market this show. Um, and it's funny because he, he he delivers it whilst dressed as Mrs. Featherbottom. <laughs> <laughs> Which just makes it all the funnier because you're like, yeah, I wonder why they couldn't figure out how to market this sitcom which has a man pretending to be like a Mary Poppins type <laughs> maid with his own wife and family. and Oh, I don't know. I can actually speak to this because I was a yes. member of Fox's marketing team at the time. Um, and while... I uh, agree with uh, both the creators and the cast of Arrested Development that Fox uh, did not seem to know how to market the show. Um, there is some issues that with the structure of the show that make it more difficult to market than other things. Um, and I think some of the muscles that were within the mechanics of Fox at the time they had been used to marketing things like The Simpsons, like Malcolm in the Middle in particular, which had been the last big uh, multi-cam sitcom hit that the network had had. And that was primarily based on physical gags. It was almost all slapstick. There was a lot of you know uh, verbal jokes in the show. But what it, what got it over with audiences in terms of how it was presented and marketed was slapstick. Now, Arrested Development is not that way. But if you were to look at the promos from the time, they will take any physical gag they possibly can and market it that way. And um, I was I was just a writer. I just provided words. I am horrible in the cutting room. So I can't say that I would have done a better job, but I will say that Everyone was trained to sort of look at things a very specific way. And the higher ups who approved things were used to seeing comedies presented in a very specific fashion. Arrested Development was purchased and kept on the air because it is a brilliantly written and performed show, not because it's the most easily marketed, you know, vehicle in the entire world. So to that sense, everyone is right here. There's, it is not easy to just piece apart these plot lines and make them sing in 25 seconds before the bumper. It's yeah. uh, it, it, or a combo spot. It's horrible. There's nothing, there's yeah. no, to get a joke, like um, just tell my brother that I've got a hard cot waiting for him. That's a funny <laughs> joke, right? But you can't play that on air. There's no way you can play yeah. that on air because you don't have the context for it. So the funniest jokes in this, um, like your father's going, my father's going to be crushed, to then see him go <laughs> behind and think that his father's been crushed underneath the house. That yeah. does not play in a combo spot with. It's The Simpsons, King of the Hill before it. It's funny as well that both the mid-season finale, essentially of season one, episode 13, and this episode both finish with Michael and Job having a fight in front of a courtroom. <laughs> they seem to resort to this kind of slapsticky kind of ending to these episodes, almost as if someone's like, look, we need something to put in the promos. Let's just give us, you know, Jason Bateman getting into a fight with Will Arnett and like you know all on the floor as if that's uh -huh. the thing that's going to sell what the show's about this well let's start at the beginning of the episode because we get here in a very small role 
uh, Rob Hubel mm-hmm. um, as Dave Williams, the the inspector. And I love the fact that he opens with a joke where he says, This isn't a real house. <laughs> and it's just like... <laughs> and I like how Michael's like, it's a model home. And um, it's, it's, really, it's really funny because, like... It's obvious to the viewers who've been watching that, yeah, this isn't a real house. It's a model home. That's the whole point. But it's funny just to have someone come in and be like, no, this isn't a real house. And I like the fact that he says, plus there's a whole lot of blue paint down there. Michael just goes, and some pieces of denim. We we got one of those. Yeah, we've got a guy like that that here, which is just great. Now, it's worth sending, of course, that they they read the city is going to red tag the house. And by the time we get to the next episode, this will be completely forgotten. And no one will, aside from the sinkhole aspect, which, you know, comes up towards the end of the episode. Basically, all of this stuff will be forgotten. It's just really weird that, uh, like, they've taken this long to realize that this house out in the middle of nowhere is not really a house. Um, but again, such a such a odd uh, odd joke. And of course, once we get up to um, you know, this is this is the this will be the prompt for George Senior having to leave the attic where he's been for most of the season. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I like <laughs> like how angry George Senior is about Oscar, where he says, as a, "I believe there's a freeloading loser in my bed." And Michael goes, "You know, Buster's just lost a hand, Dad. He's going through a lot." And I, I like <laughs> Michael would obviously, if you've been watching the show, you understand why Michael would make the assumption that the freeloader in Lucille's bed is uh, Buster and not Oscar. Yes. Um, which, which, of course, leads to Jason Bateman's delivery of, "Oh yes, your brother." Well, I could see why that would bug you. Um, you know, just. It's it's like he had an earlier joke where he you know George Senior complained about having a, a freeloading brother, and um, Michael's like yeah just one like uh, you know one sibling who's a freeloader um, yeah it's 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 we get the the whole story with um, with Oscar and, and Buster was kind of resolved a little bit when Buster actually lost his hand in that two part episode um, you know obviously he went into the sea as an act of rebellion and lost his hand. And, you know, this, this of course, meant that um, Buster, for some reason, got amnesia after losing his hand. And he forgot that he'd been told that Oscar was his father. Um, and the narrator is back here to saying that, you know, he secretly believed to be his natural son. Even though we've had this stated outright by Lucille that Buster is Oscar's son. Um, so there's kind of like a, a little bit of kind of backtracking on that whole story. Um, and we, of course, we get here. I love this because you know, on rewatching, you see how subtle this joke is. Which is, we go, we call back to the cornballer, of course, and Oscar grabs the cornballer, not realizing that um, Buster has got a fake hand. And of course, as he grabs it with both of his hands, he basically burns off his fingerprints, and. You know, it's a funny joke because obviously it calls back to the fact that the corn bowler is, you know, so poorly put together. Mm-hmm. Um, and of, of course, um, <laughs> I like when Buster screams, I'm sorry, it's my father's fault. And of course, Oscar's like, my fault. And then he goes, I mean, yes, yes, George Senior yes. sure rushed this to market. <laughs> <laughs> like a very calm voice. In between um, howls of pain. Yeah, it's... yeah. <laughs> And this this but, whole episode is sort of built on those um, say one thing means a dozen other things sort of yeah. levels. It's it's like a Rubik's cube of jokes, <laughs> and 
it's amazing. I mean, it is quite honestly one of their finest hours in terms of joke to payoff construction. It's yeah. pretty incredible. Just the the subtlety of everything, how over the course of the show, the living room becomes a Batman villain's lair and how they start to <laughs> tilt the camera. And yeah. It starts. And and over time, it it finally gets to like, oh, the Joker lives there. This is just a this is a flashback that we're seeing of um, of Oscar burning his fingerprints off, and then of course when we come back from that we get George saying she only likes him. <laughs> the only reason she likes him is because he has hair, and the only reason he has any is because he's never had any stress, and that just sounds like George Senior being bitter about the fact that Oscar has hair, and obviously Lucille on many occasions, has stated how much she loves that hair. Yes. Um, but it's also setting up a joke that won't pay off until the very end of this episode. Um, and I like how quickly they set those two things up so that if you're re-watching, you're like, oh, I know, what the, I know where those jokes are heading. But if you're just watching it for the first time, those are just funny jokes about things that George <laughs> doesn't seem to like about his brother. Yes. Uh, and this is possibly my favourite thing, referring back to prison, because obviously this is... This is the I think the, this is the last time that we get a proper reference back to prison, apart from when they have the um, the charity fundraiser in season three, um, and even then they don't really go back to you know like the the waiting room you know like where where George used to meet like that that was a proper part of the you know like the first season mm-hmm. um, where they they show the different um nights that they had and how like terrible it was and yes. you can't go back to the hellhole where they showed soap dish on friday nights <laughs> yeah and yeah they say they, they, they you have soap dish and you have group clean night and you have them painting pictures of wood and gentles and it's just <laughs> scored this like really upbeat music and it's just such a great contrast with the fact that when George says he can't go back to the joint and it, it just seems like he had, as as was stated in the pilot he was having the time of his life yes um, and it's just so much it's just such a fun kind of um, joke that they, they're setting up um, and of course now you know Michael explains that the, the court is going to try him in, in absentia and I like that Michael says you don't have to go to prison but you can't stay here um, you know which I guess is maybe a reference to the song Closing Time I don't think it probably is but I just like that song so I like to pretend that it is um, sure yeah and uh, we get back to a storyline that basically this season has been almost completely neglected uh, with the introduction of Anne George Michael's affections have not been directed at his cousin um, until we until the previous episode where maybe doing research for the young man on the beach um, said some stuff to George Michael that made him reconsider his relationship with Anne. Although once again that was dropped quite quickly, and we're back to you know the status quo of just George Michael going out with Anne. Um, and I, I like here how we get a callback to uh, the cousin Dangereuse. Um, and maybe has remade it for Tantamount Studios. Um, and I like that when maybe asks if he remembers it, you see George Michael kind of just like being. No, I. Uh, why did we? Why? Uh, I, 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 don't, I don't remember that. No. Kind of nervously. Like, he stammers solidly for forty-five seconds, <laughs> and this is where the narrator sort of helps with that particular joke because if it was just him stammering for 45 seconds it would be funny 
but he's the narrator's undercutting him immediately telling us what we already know <laughs> that of course he remembers it but the way they you know weave these things in is really really funny <laughs> and how uncomfortable visibly uncomfortable he is with his own feelings this is the point at which the narrator says he has a copy hidden in his sock drawer uh, a dvd copy in his sock drawer and of course michael sarah lunges across and closes the sock drawer just as the narrator says that as if he's hearing what the narrator is saying and the camera doesn't just like stay on like a shot of george michael it actually follows him across to the sock drawer and then comes back to george michael uh, as if like the narrator is instructing what's going on, uh, which I think is a nice touch. Um, and this is where we get the start of a joke, which I think is the opposite of the one that's in um, Afternoon Delight. Because in Afternoon Delight, each time we met Job, the price of his suit went up and up and up um, <laughs> until he until he got sad and then it went back down. Yeah. Um, and here we we have this joke where um, we see <laughs> we see the 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 screening for uh, the dangerous cousins um uh, and in the screening room um you know maybe is there with mort myers um in his his final appearance of the season um and we <laughs> we see like we hear from the film the words shut up and kiss me which you know and, and the narrator telling us that the the you know the film had uh artlessly explained that the two leads weren't biological cousins. Um, and then as we, as we get to the end of the screening, there's, it's just Mort Myers and maybe left alone and maybe asks, where is everybody? And he just goes, they've been fired and you've got to fix this, sir. You're going to be fired too. <laughs> it's just like, I love how during the, the screening, he's basically been going around the room firing people and maybe hasn't even noticed. And maybe he's the only one left out of a group of 15. And, and yeah. the, they've all been fired, and you're going to be too, unless you find a way to cut this down. It's just like, it's 71 minutes. <laughs> and the, the very next joke is her saying, it's the breeziest 63 minutes you're going to see. It's compounded by the fact that they Gilligan cut between her saying the length and it just immediately jumping down. By like eight minutes. Um, and then, of course, later on, by the time we actually get to the film being in cinemas, it will be less than an hour, um, which I don't I don't know that, that length is, you know, the issue with this. Um, but I, I like that, um, you know, George Michael, when offered, you know, the opportunity to take Anne along, he says that it's not her kind of thing. And I like that he goes, if it maintains any of the complex eroticism of the French original. Um, <laughs> and of course... George Michael, who has stated a few times this season that he likes the way the French think, he says once more, I like the way they think. As we go to the office, we get what would have been, on the DVD, you, there is the extended scenes, and this scene would have been a little bit longer, and the, the part that's cut out is, uh, Tobias at the start, he explains, um, you know, that he's, he's he can no longer work for the Bluth Company, Michael's been a great boss. He's developed an eating disorder. And all of those jokes were basically doubled up in length. So what what in the actual finished episode takes about 10 seconds actually took about 40 seconds for Tobias to get to the end of that speech. <laughs> and it's worth watching because basically Tobias keeps getting interrupted by Michael. And then he says exactly what Michael's just said. <laughs> um, 
And, and then, of course, you know, Michael, when he says, I never saw you at the desk, Tobias goes, Well, excuse me if I was too busy on my knees in front of the toilet, Michael. <laughs> He's One developed the... an eating disorder. Uh, we're not, we're never yes. see, we never yeah. see him eat, however. <laughs> <laughs> no. So we don't know the extent um, of that. Of course, this is one of the main stories that essentially, because of the loss of the four episodes, was basically dropped from the show. The <laughs> the way that David Cross explains the 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 opportunity that the Blue Man Group have given, where he keeps pointing at himself and then pointing like vaguely towards where Las Vegas is, uh, and it's just like such a kind of weird thing. Um, uh, now, here we get a remnant of what is cut down because Michael says, I'm sorry to interrupt one more time. And obviously, in the longer version, he interrupted about three or four times <laughs> before we got to that point. Um, and, you know, basically, Tobias is explaining he's going to Las Vegas uh, as the Blue Man Group have dropped their cease and desist. Um, and the narrator explains, of course, you know, because Michael double checks it's the real Blue Man Group. Um, and we see Tobias, who at the beginning of the season was pretty much duped by the same advert, <laughs> where he he's he's addressed a group of depressed men who've been described as blue. Um, and we see Tobias <laughs> walk up <laughs> and just say, "I feel like a f-ing idiot." <laughs> painted head to toe in blue for one kind of final time, carrying uh, a plastic bag full of ping pong balls so that he can do the ping pong ball <laughs> finale. <laughs> The Blue Man Group. Although that that's yeah. what they reduced the, the, the Blue Man Group to, and I can't say that they're wrong. Yes. Uh, it's interesting here. The guy who introduces him is an actor by the name of Craig Kakowski. Um, and he's been in a few things. Uh, he was a... If you if you recall in Community, there's like a police officer. Uh, he was on quite a few episodes of um, of Community. His, um, his sister, Liz Kakowski, is a writer, and she was a writer on Community. Um, and she's also an actress, uh, but she's mostly a writer. Um, and she's actually married to Akiva Schaefer. Um, uh, oh. uh, so Akiva Schaefer is his brother-in-law. Uh, something worth remembering because a different member of the Lonely Island appears at the end of this particular episode. So I like seeing Craig Kowski because I think he's really good on Community. Although here he basically only gets two words, which is just to say Tobias Funke. <laughs> I find that quite interesting. Here we see that Tobias has scheduled in Kitty Sanchez to meet with Michael uh, for four o'clock. And I like that Michael goes, why didn't you tell me about this? And Michael's like, oh, uh, Tobias, sorry, is like, oh, this is my fault. No, 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 I will not let this make me eat. Um, which I feel like that's the entire encapsulation of what would have been the storyline for the next four episodes is Tobias kind of getting angry and then deciding not to eat. Um and of course, this is where we get a montage of all the different times that Kitty has met with Michael. Um, and they all basically, you know, finish with her lifting say her top Say goodbye up. to these, yeah. And say goodbye to these, yeah. Something which they will call back to with a different character in this particular episode towards the end of the episode. Um, and <laughs> I like as well that the last time she was there, uh, she she just goes, perhaps this will jog your memory, and lifts her top up. And it's like... I like that she criticizes Michael for constantly going on about her breasts, but the only thing she ever seems to show him are her breasts. Um, which I, I feel in a little bit of a way, it's a kind of uh, a flanderization of her character because her character was actually slightly more complex than that when introduced in season one. And they have basically just turned her into this kind of manic person who just keeps lifting her top up, um, which I don't think is 
kind of you know obviously that this tends to happen to a lot of characters on sitcoms anyway you know certain things get exaggerated and i feel like this whole kind of like um you know lifting at the top thing is is what they've reduced kitty to essentially um although of course when when job enters he um he talks about um why don't you get job to do your dirty work for you shall i knock out dad and chain him to a pipe somewhere or maybe risk another herpes outbreak with kitty uh, which of course calls back to one of the first times that we saw Kitty uh, with Job. Um, <laughs> I, I like how um, Will Arnett is angry about something, and Job is angry about something, but they won't—they don't directly tell Michael what it is. Um, and this is where we find out possibly the greatest kind of um, twist on a character, because obviously Franklin um, in season one he was just Job's. Uh, racially inappropriate puppet. Yes. Um, but here we now add the dimension <laughs> of Job spending five thousand dollars <laughs> to invest in a Franklin CD, um, which of course Michael assumed was the mutual fund and not a compact disc of you singing to your hand, which might be the greatest kind of summation of what a ventriloquist act pretty much is. Uh, is someone talking to their own hand. And this is where you get to see, I mean, possibly one of the greatest jokes that Arrested Development ever produced, um, which is Job in a recording booth singing to his hand. Um, And I love the commitment. I love the commitment because as he sings each of Franklin's lines, he does move Franklin's mouth, despite the fact that... Franklin has a microphone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he has his own microphone. He has a live mic. As if it's <laughs> you need to pick up all of his vocal inflections. It's oh, and the cutaway to the to the engineer who's just like, okay, this is a paycheck. And then you, you get to the second stanza of that song, and he's already left. He's like, no, no, no. He's yeah. just left. Like he needs to go talk to a supervisor. <laughs> We're talking here about. It ain't easy being white. Yes. Job had recently made a recording of his ventriloquism act. Franklin comes alive. He hoped it would break down racial barriers and maybe be a crossover hit. It ain't easy being white. It ain't easy being brown. All this pressure to be bright. I got children all over town. Yes. (laughs) So, so wrong. It's so wrong. Um, yeah, it's, it's beautifully, it's, beautifully wrong. I mean, this <laughs> this um, sort of counters. We'll eventually get to a place where Michael's mom says that um, I know my daughter. She only wants what she can't have. And if you look yeah. back at this episode, everybody wants what they can't have. Every single character. That's what this entire episode and maybe the series is about. People wanting the, the one thing they can't have. I mean, Job wanted to be president for so long, and then when he got it, he didn't really want to be president anymore. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, yeah. But I, 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 <laughs> I love that Job explains that, you know, he tried to express something to Michael and uh, just maybe heal this country a little bit, <laughs> which is such an odd the fact that he's basically like made one CD and given it to Michael. Though we will actually find out later on that. He's at least got a second CD because he listens to it himself while he's yes. doing his um, laundry. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, 
and then of course <laughs> I like how Michael kind of backtracks here and he's like I did listen to it I am listening to it Job hey maybe the reason I didn't want to say anything is because I didn't want to embarrass you pal it's my favourite favourite record <laughs> and of course this is where Job gets very emotional and starts crying um, and I love that Job always seems to um, put people in with the emotions that he's feeling so he says <laughs> Look at us, crying like a couple of girls. And of course, Michael isn't crying at all. <laughs> You're the only one who's crying. Yeah, I, yeah. Oh my God, it's so wonderful. I like how this scene ends with, um, you know, with Michael talking about how he loves the healing, and Job saying "home run" and kind of just like falling back onto the sofa and. Uh, my, Will Arnett really going through a lot of different emotions in this one scene, starting out angry and finishing up like really happy. Um, and I like how Michael leaves just as Job says, "You leave the rough stuff to Franklin and me." And the fact that Job characterizes Franklin as being a completely separate being, <laughs> uh, something that will return in season three. But it's just I love the way he kind of characterizes Franklin as if he's completely separate. You know, as Michael leaves, he says, "Now I got to listen to that CD." Um, and we get what is probably one of the weirder scenes where Job, of course, uh, doing as he did in season one, using Franklin, um, you know, and the and the ether to knock out George Senior. Um, but I like I like how <laughs> when Franklin reappears, George Senior just goes, hey, Franklin, like as if Franklin is a real person. Like he doesn't hate Franklin. It's what no. he like. He hates the- Job, but he doesn't hate Franklin. Franklin is the in his mind the better half of Job. Like he's happy. Like, oh look, it's Franklin. <laughs> he's so excited. <laughs> like this is the part of you all tolerate. This this racist puppet. It's just like, how about a kiss? And then the narrator goes, He did not want a kiss. <laughs> Which <laughs> yeah. then doubles back later when he's knocked out in in the car. Job goes, Oh, we should he sort of puppets uh, Michael Senior's mouth uh, to to basically condone his behavior and say that he loves him, and then yeah. he goes, "Oh, how, how about a kiss? <laughs> this is the second <laughs> forced kiss." Yeah, a lot of forced kisses from Job and Job's other personalities. I, I like as well. We get a little scene in between Job forcing a second kiss on George Senior, where. Um, Tobias and Lindsay finally kind of split up after all season having kind of been like in the open relationship, which just ended up actually bringing them closer together. Um, I I like that we get the confusion here that probably maybe some of the viewers share where (laughs) Lindsay says, maybe this is a sign that our relationship isn't working. We should split again. Now, wait a second. I thought we were split up and this would bring us back together. Well, maybe the fact that we don't know if we're together or not is a sign that we should split again or stay split up. Okay. Forget about Vegas. We'll stay here and get back together or stay together and either rekindle. So weird the way he says it because he's just kind of, as if he hasn't, as if he's saying to the audience, as if the writers are saying to the audience, we have no idea what's going on. I think a big um, part of the the reason why you have these types of conversations in the show is that one of the gripes that various executives or marketing people or even um, critics had at the time was that this was the type of comedy you had to pay attention to. If you didn't 
understand exactly what was happening, they said. You didn't get all the nuance of it. And yeah. that's not, that is true, but it also kind of isn't. Because no one really ever progresses. They enter into this point in the season constantly breaking up, constantly getting back together. They want what they can't have is exactly the way it's stated. Yeah. You, you could have just watched the pilot or never watched anything up until this point and still find this conversation funny. Or you could have watched every episode and taken notes and drawn diagrams. You would still find it funny. And that's, that's <laughs> the genius of Arrested Development, is it's both of those things. I think you could have watched the first episode of season two uh, and then watched this episode and the stuff with Lindsay and Tobias is kind of almost the exact same where at the start of the season they're talking about the open relationship and here they're still talking about it but not acting on it. And so it's almost like for it doesn't matter those middle 16 episodes what happened between the two of them because they're basically in the same spot as they were like 18 episodes earlier. And it's literally arrested development. Nothing has moved forward. They are stuck at a certain point. You know, Buster losing a hand is yeah. probably the biggest marker of time that you could possibly tell. That's where the narrator comes in. He fills in all the gaps every single time. So even if yeah. you hadn't known all that information, he will tell you right away. Yeah, I think it's funny because obviously, you know, a criticism of the show is that, you know, all these different running jokes and everything. But the narrator's always there to hold the hand of the audience. And in the, even in the pilot, we said, you know, like when they put the narrator in, that was when they found the kind of comic voice of the show. And it works so well, you know, and everyone loves Ron Howard. So, yeah. you know. Um, and something we didn't mention, but, uh, we, you know, the end of the scene where Job is um, is driving George Sr., he uh, he notices the CD that he made for Michael that has Michael's face on it. And in, a, like, a brilliant piece of comic timing, he holds it up just as we see a flash. And they don't, they don't kind of explain what it is at that moment. It's just like a, a very subtle setup for a joke later on. And Job saying it's not even open, Michael, and kind of getting angry. Um, so obviously it kind of finishes that scene off, but it it also cleverly sets up a little joke uh, that will pay off in a bit. Um, and then we finally get the return of Kitty, um, who is apparently now in the program, um, and she has a sponsor. Yes. Uh, now obviously Kitty, the last time we saw her, she was um, getting drunk at um, Senior Tadpoles in a drinking competition <laughs> against... Against um, against Lucille and obviously losing that battle because you know Lucille even when in rehab is in the middle of a drinking contest. Um, so and then you know uh, I, I there's this I don't know what this bit is all about but there's this weird bit where she says that her sponsor is famous um, and obviously Michael is very dismissive because he's like that's great like he 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 doesn't really care about who it is but she then starts dropping literally all like the hints where she says. Um, he was on night court, um, and it's not a bull, and it's not Harry Anderson. And I like that Michael's like, I got it. And then she's like, he's white, and he's like, I know who it is. And it just it just keeps going and going and going. And the weird thing is, like, night court over here was never really a big thing. It wasn't like a show that got, like, we got Cheers, we got MASH, 
you know, we got Friends. Friends is still huge over here. Right. Um, you know, there are certain shows that, that got, that came over here and that were, you know, huge deals. You know, we got Seinfeld, but they stuck it on at midnight on a Tuesday. Right. Um, you know, we got Larry Sanders, but they put it on at 1am on a Saturday. Like, you know, there were shows that came over here, but nobody paid attention to, but we never, like, I'm sure there's some channel somewhere now that probably shows Night Court, but Night Court was never a big thing over here. So this bit always kind of like puzzled me because she keeps going on about all these characters and I'm like, I, I you know, I could Google it, of course, but I'm right. like, I, I don't know what this joke is meant to be. I don't know what she's meant to be like trying to get at. Well, ultimately, ultimately what this joke is, is that she's an alcohol, Alcoholics Anonymous and she's yes. trying desperately not to make it anonymous. <laughs> she's telling everyone she's in it and she's telling everyone who her sponsor is in the most teasing way possible <laughs> i yeah. have to wonder because john larroquette i believe did what was a member of alcoholics anonymous and his subsequent sitcom dear john was a lot yeah. about him and recovering from substance abuse um so i i assume they're they're referencing that a little bit and and feeling yeah. like okay here's a person who's obviously announced to the world that this is a problem that he's had and wouldn't it be funny if she was that but they keep taking it, and and then um, you know Michael's trying desperately not to know because it's Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Don't tell me. Yeah. You're not supposed <laughs> to tell me. Uh, Senior Tadpole is a reference to Senior Frogs, uh, which is a uh, Mexican institution south of the border um, that has yeah. crept up over the border here. And um, it's ba- yeah, basically a place where ladies go to drink excessively. But I, li- I like the fact that she says, um, you know, I'm not going to try and hurt you guys anymore. And Michael's like, uh, can we get it in writing? And Kitty's like, you did try to blow me up on a boat. <laughs> She's got a point. Yeah, but Michael apologizes for that. But the weird thing is he... He was vehemently against destroying the boat for that trick. He didn't want to give the boat to Job, you know, as part of that trick. He didn't want him to blow it up. So I don't know why she's angry at Michael. She should be angry at Job. That's the thing is Michael's the only one who takes responsib- active responsibility yeah. for everything. Yeah. So once again, he's never moved forward. He's the one who constantly steps up to take responsibility for things that are not necessarily his fault. And I, I do love the way Judy Greer is like, just don't piss me off again. Like, there's a certain level of menace that Kitty has. When we last saw her, she had um, she had George Sr.'s sperm. So I, I don't know why there was no progress on that particular storyline. Like, I don't know why she... She didn't use that, or, um, you know, we never hear about that again. Um, it's just kind of odd that she she so desperately wanted a child that she kidnapped George Sr. to have sex with him. And then once she had his sperm, she didn't use it in any way. Um, well, I mean, it's not, I mean, Arrested Development do this quite a lot, where they just drop, drop stories after certain right. episodes. So it's not really that much of a problem. But still, it's one of those things that kind of puzzles you on rewatching. You're thinking to yourself, well, you know, she says, of course, that without a man, she gets crazy. But you think to yourself, well, she was kind of trying to get a kid. So, um, you know, why didn't she she go with that? Um, Of course, at this particular point, Tobias um, (laughs) interrupts. um, In one of the cutscenes, there is a slightly longer version of this scene, which kind of just adds a few lines here and there. It doesn't really kind of change things. But I like how Tobias walks in and he starts going. Oftentimes the heart acts without consulting the head. And thus the I bear... He immediately sees Kitty and he's like... Well, I see you wasted no time in filling my seat hole. 
a weird way to phrase that. I like how we get um, both of the assistants deciding to um, flash Michael, where Kitty says uh, she just came by so he could say goodbye to these. <laughs> and, of course, she says it's the last time you're going to be seeing these. And I like that Judy Greer, like, previously she's always said that line quite aggressively, and it's always kind of been threatening, but the tone here is, like, kind of very... Uh, kind of measured Mm -hmm. and she kind of turns it into like uh, kind of I don't know kind of like a very kind of soulful line where she says it's the last time you'll be seeing these Uh, it's just such a great reading and of course Michael uh, Tobias uh, immediately does the same and he says will you take these back and both of them have the same uh, blur over the over the the breasts. It's just a, it's such a great kind of like visual, like a callback to a joke now that they've done like four or five times with Judy Greer. But of course, adding the twist of having uh, Tobias doing the same, and of course, we've seen um, David Cross's nipples plenty of times in the show. They didn't need to blur him out, uh, but I just like that, that they kind of went for this weird little joke. Uh, one of the most effective bullets in the sort of bandolier of Arrested Development is taking the same joke and heightening it or adding someone else into it. And the yeah. the premier example of this, and we talked about this in the very first episode, which is the, the chicken dance. Everyone has their own version of the chicken dance. Everyone takes it to their own level. <laughs> now we're seeing it with Kitty's <laughs> topless scene. Um, and so that that's one of those things that I just kind of love, is that everyone is allowed in on somebody else's sort of personal joke. Just like we've had a lot of different people say her, um, or, you know, him, or, you know, variations on, on that phrase yeah. about different people, not just Anne. But, you know, even the first time it was said wasn't about Anne, it was about Steve Holt, uh, bizarrely <laughs> enough. Steve Holt. <laughs> the, uh, the, yeah, the her. But, yeah, and, and of course, uh, <laughs> this is where Tobias, uh, David Cross delivers this so perfectly, uh, you know, when, when he realises he's not going to Vegas, he says, So I shall continue to toil through this waking life <laughs> it's so dramatic a, and of course this gets Kitty's attention where she says wow you are so real of course to one of the kind of like most fakiest stagiest lines that he's ever said and the narrator of course you know helps us out by t- saying that Michael decided to keep Kitty occupied with the man and I like how Michael instantly is like hey gang I got an idea Tobias why don't you take Kitty out for the afternoon I, and I, I, I love as well t- Tobias kind of instantly comes up with a Hugh Grant, Julia Roberts type movie where, you know, a former assistant and current assistant are being set up. Which, you know, I I, I guess would be an okay movie, but I don't think with um, with Tobias and, uh, and Kitty in those particular parts. Um, and of course this is where Kitty actually says John Larroquette is looking for a meaty character part, which of course kind of calls back to some of the language that... Um, uh, you know, uh, Tobias has said when he talked about, uh, you know, those meaty leading man parts right. that he could taste. Um, <laughs> we get a, a Wayne Jarvis, uh, such a great character, um, you know, essentially like a one-off character, really, because he was only, you know, he was only, he was barely the lawyer for that one particular episode yeah. in season one. But the fact that they brought him back as the prosecutor, I think such a great move. Um, because the actor, whose name escapes me at this particular moment, but I'm sure I will find in a second. I, I, I always want to say John Michael Higgins, but I'm not sure if that's the correct order. Hey, uh, 
Yeah, there's a Higgins in there. <laughs> now, now you got <laughs> yeah. me. Now that's all I can think about. Are the Higgins brothers? Yeah, it is John Michael Higgins. That's there Wayne you go. Jarvis. Yeah, he's he, he, the the you know Michael obviously he knows where his father is. He's got to go to this meeting and say he doesn't know where his father is. Um, and I like I like how he says that um, you know uh, he was free of obstacles, uh, ready to sign this affidavit. And he goes into the meeting with um, Wayne Jarvis and Cho. And um, <laughs> I like how he goes, have you been in contact with him? Are you prepared to, you know, like sign to say that? Um, and they, they they exchange glances between, you know, Wayne Jarvis and, and Michael and Barry and Joe. And obviously, you know, Barry, there's a couple of suggested glances between him and Joe. Um, and then as Michael goes to sign, two officers come in and Wayne Jarvis, you know, he goes, Officers! Michael, these men are here just a little bit early. Um, because we have photographic evidence that discredits the affidavit you just signed. Um, and of course, Barry calls back to the last time Wayne Jarvis was on the show when he says, are those balls? Because last time we were here, they were balls. balls. Yeah. And then, and then this is where we get the payoff, of course, for the traffic cam. And we see, you know, the, the photograph of uh, what looks like Michael driving George Sr. in the car. And of course, uh, this is where Barry says, "I wish they were balls." Um, now, there, there was a, there is a cut scene that has some of Barry's kind of um, kind of country bumpkin lawyer tactics, where we see you know Michael in the in custody, and um, Barry keeps talking about how he's gonna you know spill his coffee on him in, in front of himself so that Wayne Jarvis thinks that he's incompetent. Right. And it, it there were a few kind of little gags about that. To me, it kind of like felt like um, you know Barry has shown himself to be an incompetent lawyer in the very first episode. You know, George Senior said that he had the worst lawyer. And we've seen that consistently. So I think the idea to reveal at this point that it's kind of like an act and that Barry's actually a really good lawyer, but he just keeps like spilling food on himself to make himself look like an idiot. I I don't think that would have really fitted with the character, um, you know, so I think it was wise for them to kind of cut it. That, particularly as there was this whole thing about him going to get some ice cream and then he gives it to a kid and then he chases the kid to get the ice cream back towards the end of the episode where they have the uh, the fight outside the courtroom. And, I mean, it was amusing stuff, but I, I don't feel it really added anything to the character of Barry, who at this point is pretty well defined. You know, Henry Winkler, you know, obviously so well known for the Fonz. I think in, in this role, much like, uh, you know, Jeffrey Tambor, when he came into this, he was so well known for being Hank Kingsley. And then he basically completely redefined, you know, himself doing George Sr. And I think Henry Winkler, I would, you know, I would hope people, when they think about his career, they would kind of put Barry Zuckercorn up there, probably not with the Fonz, you know, given the level of popularity that Happy Days had yeah. um, and the, the the kind of unpopularity that uh, Arrested Development had. But I think, you know, this is this is the penultimate appearance, basically. You know, we get one more episode with, with Henry Winkler um, and, and then he's, he's no longer on the show. So, uh, you know, I, I just thought it would have been odd if they'd kind of turned him into this... I don't know, like almost like an idiot savant who's like deliberately doing things to make himself look stupid. Uh, it's such it was would have been such an odd note to have the character kind of go out on because you know in the next episode he's shown to be completely incompetent once again. So um, yeah, so but I just it's, think it's interesting. It, it falls into the grand tradition of 
uh, a character on Arrested Development deciding that this very extreme, unnecessary path is the only way for them to improve or change or adapt. And you have Michael just going, why don't you just change the thing that you want to change? Yeah. In, in Barry's case, it is, I would like to be perceived as a bumpkin so that every, no one will see my brilliance coming when really he's just a complete idiot uh, who <laughs> no one will ever see any genius coming from. And when it happens, it happens by accident. And in terms of, of uh, Henry Winkler, what I definitely think this did was reframe him in the minds of a younger generation of comedy writers to see him in a completely different way, which was not to just place him as... He was not frozen in time as the Fonz. He could be used yeah. in other ways, and his comedic... T- this Between this and Scream, I think, freed him from that sort of frozen and amber as the Fonz that he was. Uh, yeah. People are like, oh, he's funny. Oh, he can be threatening. Oh, there's different <laughs> shades to him. And yeah. everything after that has be, has become... Because those those two roles sort of broke him out of the mold everyone tried to fit him into. And I'm sure some people probably don't think this is a good film, but he's also quite amusing in Waterboy as well. I think, um, you know, where he, he plays the uh, the coach that... Yeah. Adams, you know, the, the kind of is very timid and beaten down, you know. And at one point, he reveals he's got a, like a, a gigantic. I can't even remember what it's a tattoo of. But he reveals he's got a tattoo on his buttocks or something, uh, which you know is an unexpected moment from the Fonz. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 the one of the great things about I think about Arrested Development is it it did allow a number of different actors to kind of, you know, do something slightly different. And I think like the kind of Henry Winkler has done quite a lot of stuff since Arrested Development. And, you know, I, like you say, yeah, I think between Scream and this, I think that kind of the research, the idea that he wasn't just the Fonz, that he could do other stuff. I think that was like one of the nice outcomes of Arrested Development. For sure. Uh, as, as brief as it was. And obviously, I, you know, in the, in season three, he gets replaced once again by a, a younger model, um, you know, which kind of years later, you know, the actor has slightly different connotations, but Mm. you know, we'll talk about that when we get to season three. Yes. Now, obviously Job gets to the police station and I like how he describes where he found the CD. He found it between the gearbox and the pullback from aircraft lever. And it's it's such such a like very specific thing. And of course he says, uh, so this is how you repay me for how I repay you. It's such a weird kind of like aggressive, but oddly phrased way of putting that. I like how Joby's kind of angry about the fact that Michael hasn't listened to the CD. Um, you know, because obviously Michael had earlier in the episode had lied about listening to it. Um, you know, and, and they were they ended up crying like a couple of schoolgirls. Um, um, so I, I think Job is kind of justified in his anger. But at the same time, you know, it's it's a CD of him sticking to his hand, as Michael phrased it. Like, it's such an odd thing for him to you know kind of be angry about um and of course this is this is this is where um i love this exchange where you know you know michael you know job has obviously got dad stashed somewhere which is what he says um and he says you know uh get him quickly otherwise i'm going to be stuck here and i like how job goes good i hope you rot in here and then michael's like what are you talking about? And he's like, Dad, kiss me. How? He looked pretty unconscious. In that and I love kind of the beat and then the reading of, 
I didn't say he was totally into it. I don't, Will Arnett just sells that line so perfectly, but at the same time, I don't know how he thinks he's getting the upper hand on Michael by saying he, he like kissed his father who was unconscious. It's just such a kind of. I just, I just, I just love Job's kind of idea of this is how he's gonna get his, his like his his way back to Michael is being angry at him in this way. It's just such an such an odd move. He's um, so overly convinced that he has a point to prove that he doesn't yeah. realize it doesn't prove his point until after it passes his lips. <laughs> and yeah. he's constantly doing this. He also, the other thing that uh, he has a tendency to do is monologue to himself. To yeah. uh, And he has, like, he has these amazing conversations with no one in particular. That he, he makes <laughs> yeah. these grand pronouncements or or amazing epiphanies to himself of like, okay, now I'm I'm here, I'm gonna I'm listening to the song in, in the laundry and I'm gonna help you little brother. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna be there for you <laughs> to no one. No one else is there. And yeah. all that stuff is with he's a satellite unto himself. George Michael is attempting to break up with Anne because you know, he, he finally has rekindled his love for his cousin. Yes. Um, something which has been rekindled by the fact that his cousin has remade La Cousin Dangereuse. Um, and, you know, I, I, I like how we get this weird... We get a flash... I mean, something that I love about Arrested Development is when it does flashbacks to things that we haven't actually seen before. So we get this flashback to when George and Anne protested... Um, the home of Mark Cherry, executive producer of the hit show Desperate Housewives, um, and I, I, I don't know what they're like. They're, I don't know what they're protesting about, but they're kind of just like yelling at Mark Cherry's house, and we see Mark Cherry, the actual Mark Cherry, yes, um, just to say it's a satire. When Mark Cherry, you know, catches Anne and and um, George Michael, that's when they, uh, that's when they kiss, um, but. Obviously, Mark Cherry, as I've mentioned previously, was a writer on uh, The Golden Girls with Mitch Hurwitz. Um, and, you know, that is how they managed to get him to kind of do this cameo. And then later in season four, they they used Mark Cherry once again, but not the actual Mark Cherry, a different Mark Cherry. But I also kind of like, I, I just, I, it's just, I think Mark Cherry, you know, I enjoyed the first few seasons of Desperate Housewives. Towards the end, I feel it kind of went off the rails a little bit. Um, but I like that Mark Cherry was just game to just kind of have this really weird appearance, of just kind of of these people yelling at his house. Um, and I don't know if that is his actual house. I, I suspect it probably wasn't. But yeah. I just like the idea that Mark Cherry was, you know, like that Mitch Hurwitz just called him up and said, can we have you on just for this one line? Uh, and he said yes to it. At the time, this is, this is that weird meta commentary that Arrested Development can do. Because at this moment in time, Arrested Development in America is on at Sunday at 9 p.m. opposite ABC's Desperate Housewives. Desperate Housewives. It's probably the biggest show in the country at that point, once it ended oh, huge. season two. And it was gigantic. Yeah. So yeah. you have one of the most critically acclaimed comedies having on the biggest show in the country's creator on to do what is basically a throwaway joke. Yeah, for no particular reason other than to set up the idea that George Michael likes to get Anne in protest situations so that she'll actually show affection to him. This is the hoop that he has to jump through in order to actually get any reciprocation from her. Her. Yeah. And yeah. 
And of, of course, where they decided to film this is just some random road in Century City right next to 20th Century Fox. This is where we, where I began to notice that we've completely abandoned the having to drive down to Orange County for locations. Now you're seeing every location you now see in Modern Family over and over and over again. It's just like, here's three blocks away from the Pico lot where we're doing production of Arrested Development, or now, Modern Family. It's just, just a kind of weird, silly thing for them to do. But yeah, I, I, I like that, you know, as well. You Obviously, George, you know, George, Michael, and, and Anne are going to protest um, you know, uh, the, the, the church, the church group are going to protest the, the, the dangerous cousins film. Uh, and of course it's the fact that Anne says those bastards and, you know, uh, Anne said the bastard to, to Mark Cherry. And then of course I like how, when we get back from the flashback, George Michael's standing there, uh, you know, willing to go to this protest and he just kind of quietly says bastards. <laughs> um, like, constantly trying to recreate the man. And I think he does that a couple of times. With maybe where he tries to recreate a moment and some yeah. sort of um, uh, Groundhog's Day sort of situation where he's like, "If only I put all these puzzle pieces in a row, the same thing will happen." Buster has previously found out that Oscar was his father. Then he lost his hand and, for some reason, lost his memory of that particular piece of knowledge. Yes. Um, and here we see, you know, Buster's. Hand, you know, accidentally uh, he puts it against the uh, the cornballer, and um, you know, I like how Oscar goes, you know, because uh, you know, he's telling Buster to be careful. He goes, "I'm so forgetful. I hope you don't get that from me." And of course, Buster goes, "Get that from you? Do you feel okay?" And of course, as he puts his now very hot hand to Oscar's head, he goes. Uh, just forget it. I wanted to share my pop secret with you, but forget it. And then kind of walks off. And that's the thing that prompts Buster to remember when he hears the words pop secret. Uh, and then he just goes, is Oscar my real father? And it's just kind of like, it's, it's such a weird way for them to kind of get back there. Um, and it's worth noting that by the time we get to like the next episode, he's basically forgotten about it again. Um, so I'm not quite sure why they, like obviously we, as the audience, we've been told explicitly that, Oscar is 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 Buster's uh, father, but I don't know why they keep having like Buster forget it, um, just so they can reintroduce it and then forget it again. Uh, it's like it's kind of very odd. Everything gets reset. No one's really learned any particular sort of lesson. You know, Michael obviously he's still in prison. He you know he speaks to Lucille, and um, you know uh, he asks he asks Lucille to not tell. Um, you know George Michael that he's in prison. Um, once again, there's a, a you know a parent trying to protect their child from you know the the truth. Um, and I, I like how Michael you know when once he reveals that, that you know Tobias uh, particularly as well Lucille says can't the girl at work do it and Michael goes Tobias. Um, he he says that he sent sent him on a date with Kitty. And I like how Lucille is there and she goes, Well, you better hope Lindsay doesn't find out. She'll be devastated. And of course, this is where Lindsay overhears it and says, Find out what? And uh, Jessica Walters' delivery of... Your husband's dating Kitty the whore. It's like so perfect. <laughs> and of course, Lindsay is devastated. And as she walks out, Lucille goes, Do I know my daughter? I don't know what she's trying to prove. <laughs> but I just, I just love how she's willing to basically devastate Lindsay to prove a point of how well she knows that a single line can devastate Lindsay. It's such a kind of uh, weird way. Um, 
And but I especially like that Michael goes, since you're devastating people, go ahead and tell Job that I'll be telling the cops it was him in the truck. Um, There's no use fighting it at this point. He's just like, all right, if <laughs> he can't affect anything from where he is, so he just rolls with it. I, he, and of course, this is where we get a kind of uh, you know you know a, a kind of dirtier joke than is actually said, where Michael you know says that uh, Job will be joining him. He says, got a nice hard cot with his name on it. And Lucille goes, you, you do, do that to your own brother. brother. And of course, Michael goes, I said cot. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, that's one of the things, obviously, I mean, you know, a lot of people talk about kind of like the restrictions of network television. And I think that's one of the things that Arrested Development really leaned into, particularly with the kind of bleeping and, you know, people putting their hands up to their mouths or hiding their mouth when they swore. And, you know, that kind of joke as well of, of having people mishear something uh, is also, you know, something that I think is, is kind of a really good use of, you know, the kind of network standards. Um, and this is where Buster enters angry with one of my favorite deliveries from Tony Hale, where he goes, You said my father was my father, but my uncle is my father. My father is my uncle! And I just love the kind of the outrage and anger that he has in that in that moment and also tony hale delivers what could be you know quite a tricky line really well um uh, and you know lays out the situation of course for any viewers who haven't been watching exactly what's going on uh his uncle is his father and his father is his uncle um and uh this is where we we get of course you know we, we'd already seen the, the debut of it, it ain't easy being brown uh possibly one of my favorite original arrest development uh, songs next to um, uh, Yellow Boat and um, I'm trying try, and Falls in the Air. Those are probably my yeah. two other favorites. Um, but here we we have Job singing as Franklin, um, you know, on the CD saying that he's got a special thank you for the brother who made this happen, um, which of course has a double meaning, you know, as to you know who Franklin might be talking about there. Um, and Job said, you know, start singing everything I do. Um, we we hear him, you know, saying, you know, he'd fight for you, he'd lie for you, walk the wire for you. And and then, of course, uh, you know, the, the narrator telling us that Michael could never turn his brother in. Um, and we cut to Job in a laundrette um, finishing off the song. And it's such a great, like, match cut. Um, and... You know, he 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 t- says to to back. You know, just at the mi- just at the moment where Michael decides that he didn't want to turn Job in, Job decides to turn himself in, and you know, dis- decides to turn um, George Senior in. Um, and you know, it's quite a touching moment. But then we see Franklin taken out of the dryer, and um, you know, for the only for the only time in the show. Uh, you know, Will Arnett does this really odd British accent and he goes, You've ruined the act, Joe. And it's such a great kind of, you know, Franklin is is in this, you know, he's only been in like two episodes very briefly and, you know, he's such a kind of strange idea that Joe would decide to have a black puppet. Um, So kind of having him turn into this weird kind of like, you know, white puppet uh, is is such a kind of, is a nice little joke. Um, and the thing is, as well, is when they bring Franklin back in season three, Job frames it by saying he's re-dyed, rested and ready to go. And that first part is essentially a callback to this very brief moment here. 
Yeah. And it's that, le- it's that level of detail, you know, it's just so, so great. Um, you know, and we get a call back to Oscar and Lucille arguing at each other when Lucille, you know, you know, says that Oscar has, you know, once again revealed the secret. And he says, she says, you're high. And of course, Oscar says, you're drunk. Uh, and then Lucille gets to say, you know, say goodbye to these because it's the last time. And of course, as she says that, the documentary crew decide to cut the footage rather than, um, you know, just put a dot up. So... Uh, which I think is unfair because Jessica Walter seems like she's in great shape. So yes, uh, you know, but it's, I, a, I just, it's like, a cheap joke for a show yeah. that generally does not truck in them. I just want to say for the for the record, I believe that what Franklin really is is a callback to Jay Johnson on the TV show Soap, who played right. one of the members of the family who only talked through his puppet Bob, and See? I think that this is the that is just the weirdest callback in a show that <laughs> trucks in the weirdest callbacks. That this is what they're kind of pointing to. Now, when we get to the protest, which, again, there was a, a little bit cut from this, you know, a couple of extra lines about, you know, the signs that George Michael had made. Uh, we see that maybe and George Michael are are there. And, um, you know, Anne says that he is protesting. He helped make some signs. And, of course, George Michael is holding a sign and he says, well, only mine and the one that says, this is a tricky grey area. Uh, You know, once again revealing, you know, what he would uh, like to do. Mm. Um, And this is where we get the payoff for Maybe, who each time she mentions the film, we find out it's getting shorter and shorter. And uh, as the the passerby, you know, he's he's encouraged to go into the theatre by the protest, of course, where Anne says it's a disgusting movie about cousins who are into each other. And, of course, he asks if there are any more seats and maybe says, yeah, it's the best 52 minutes you'll spend all day. Um, which, I, I mean, I don't think 52 minutes qualifies as a motion picture. No. I think there's like, a, there's like a, a floor where if you cut past a certain point, you're no longer a film. Uh, and, I, I, you know, I think, obviously, you know, The Dangerous Cousins has gone way past that particular point. Um and, of course, this is where, you know, George Michael, you know, prompts, uh, you know, as Anne realises that they're, they're, they're sending people into the cinema, you know, Michael asks, George Michael asks, so I guess this means no kiss. And, of course, Anne says, this isn't Mark Cherry's house, uh, which is a phrase that I'll say to people on various occasions, mostly people who've never seen this show. And obviously it is very puzzling to them because... That is such a strange thing to say to people, but I just, I just kind of love her, her anger at, um, you know, um, George Michael trying to force the situation essentially. Yeah. Um, now I have a feeling that 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 is the last we'll see of Anne in this episode. Um, you know, uh, because obviously we, you know, once we get to the end of the episode, we we, we get back into, um, you know, we get back into the whole George Michael. Uh, maybe thing and you know may whitman will only actually make i think two appearances in season three um so you know season two is kind of the heyday of anne um but i i kind of i do kind of like that basically the final line she had in this season was this is not mark cherry's house because uh, that's just such a, a wonderfully puzzling line um and of course buster inadvertently reveals to george michael that uh, his father is in prison, um, and 
I, I like how he, he, he says, guess who I found out who my father is. And of course, George Michael's not concerned about that. Um, you know, he, he's, he's more concerned about the fact that his father's in jail. Yes. Um, but I like as well that Buster says, I wouldn't worry about it. Barry's very good, which calls back to, you know, season one where, you know, both Lucille and uh, Buster in Barry Zuckercorn's first appearance, both kept praising how much of a lawyer he was and how great he was. Uh, obviously this is something that's clearly been ingrained in Buster, um, and, you know, Buster at this particular point says, I'm going to go upstairs and take a long shower. I don't want to even smell like Mother anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so, so weird. There's a ton of, uh, you know, fun things in here. They appear outside of the uh, Beverly Hills uh, Courthouse, uh, which is not in Orange County. Um, people <laughs> might recognize it from such things as Beverly Hills Cop. It's very prominent there. Uh, also uh, seen in, um, oh, the Sylvester Stallone, Kurt Russell, Tango and Cash. Tango Just and Cash, a lot yeah. Of Tango and Cash. <laughs> I had to say the stars of the movie in order to prompt my remembrance <laughs> of the film's title. Um, some sort of ingrained trailer copy problem there. And uh, then, of course, you have, uh, you have George Michael and Mamie's uh, Kiss, which... They have up until this point. George Michael has believed if they act, if it actually happens, like the the world will crack in half, and wouldn't you know it? As soon as they kiss, the home that they're in cracks in half. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I I I love that because you know, um, Lindsay kind of wanders past trying to. She's going to take a bath with a bottle of wine. Um, uh, you know, uh, while, this is all happening, of course, while they shouldn't be using any water in the house because the pipes yeah. just empty out into what is apparently, uh, you know, cans of blue paint and cutoffs. Um, so I, I, I just love how you know Lindsay's kind of wandering around drunk here, um, and everyone suddenly decided to use all the water, um, and, and you know, maybe I mean this is probably about as on the nose as this show is going to get, where she says. You know, you know, they they kiss, and then she goes, "We didn't get swallowed up into hell," and then of course, the 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 floor gives way, and they go, they get into a sinkhole, um, and and I love how Job comes home and he goes, "Dad's going to be crushed," um, which of course George Michael takes as meaning his father when he says, "You don't have to tell him," and then the narrator basically tells us he was referring to his own father who he'd hidden under the house. Um, and then, of course, you know, we get one of the very rare... I think this is probably the only time we see, like, the side of the house. Yeah. Uh, and on the commentary, I think even Mitch Hurwitz is like, they didn't really like the set, and they weren't really happy with how it's lit, because it just looks like a set, basically. Yeah. Uh, and they kind of had to film it late at night, and everyone was very tired, and they just they just basically tried to get this shot really quick and just get out of there. And it does feel kind of a. It's it's one of very few times. I mean, you know, the uh, the model home is a set, um, but it's always lit well enough that it doesn't it doesn't really look like a set. But this little thing here looks really kind of um, very last minute and very fake. Yeah, the stucco the stucco has a weird pink appearance, which we know that it, from yeah. seeing it over and over again, it has that uh, very Orange County sand stucco look. Which is very familiar yeah. to anyone who happens to live here in Southern California. Um, yeah, it, it doesn't uh, look convincing, but you know, it's just there for that one joke of, 
you know, the of Job uh, hiding <laughs> George Senior under the house and him not getting crushed. Um, and I do love how Job is like, children, you're small, crawl under there. Um, <laughs> but I like that he doesn't call either of them by their name, he just calls them children. Um, you know, uh, which, which, is, which is quite funny. Uh, uh, now, I find it actually quite admirable that obviously Job is trying to chase down, um, you know, George Senior because he, he wants to turn him in. Um, you know, uh, but we, we get to the courthouse... Um, once again, there's a few little bits cut here from when Job gets off his, um, his segue, there's a little bit that he did where he, he didn't want to put it all the way down, but he hasn't got the kickstand cause it's broken. So there's a whole thing where he's trying to get off it and try to place it on the floor without damaging it. Uh, which was like a nice little kind of like 45 second bit of Will Elnett doing some physical comedy. But obviously when you see the, the kind of like the final version, they just cut straight from him getting off on it to them getting into a fight. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do, I do love how Job approaches going, great news. Dad wasn't crushed to death. And of course they were going, there was a risk of that. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, of course, you know, he, he he says that he handcuffed him under the house, which is really weird because he basically kind of like chloroformed him in the attic, then took him for a ride and then chained him under the house. So he, he just went in a big loop. Um, mm-hmm. So it's really just such an odd. I guess he couldn't find anywhere else to put him uh, after he'd kissed him. So he just decided to stick him under the house, which is really weird. Um, and of course, this is this is where, uh, as with the end of the first season, the uh, the Bluth boys. Well, not the end of the first season. Sorry, the the mid season of, uh, of 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 season one, where they they finished the martyr storyline. Uh, this is where Job and Michael get into a fight outside of a courtroom, um, and the narrator even says this. Uh, you know, kind of uh, making it clear that they were once again fighting in front of the courthouse. Yeah. Um, uh, and, and and this is where and this is this is kind of like a something that the show kind of does particularly with its finales which is it kind of gets the main characters all in one place so that they can resolve a lot of stories and so obviously here we have Tobias and Kitty show up because they're going to go to Vegas and Lindsay turns up and of course um, you know she, she goes to fight for her man and Kitty just punches her in the face and knocks her out um, which is such a great because obviously, you, you know, you expect that Lindsay maybe is a bit of a fighter, but, you know, Kitty just instantly puts an end to that. Um, and then this is where George shows up, kind of going back to what they was basically stated in the, the pilot of Family First. He talks about how he's torn apart the family, but families stick together. If you've already seen the episode, you know that this is really a bit of an act that George is putting on here for everybody. You know, he's he's really kind of playing this up. Um, you know about turning himself in because obviously you know he has a plan already in place um you know he's already got his brother stowed away in the toilets of the courthouse um and i like as well how he, he very he very carefully sets it up here saying by by going i don't want you to come and visit me in prison this time <laughs> which is it's a line that they kind of just put in there with this long speech but obviously that is a setup for you know uh, uh, the joke that they will pay off in the uh, in the on the next, and obviously uh, will set up something for for the the start of season three. Mm. Um, and of course, as Lindsay comes to, she says that she she fought for you, uh, you know, to, to Tobias. And Tobias goes, "I can't believe it. 
I'm going to Vegas with Kitty. <laughs> um, Buster shows up as well. You know, the whole family are basically there. Buster encourages Lucille to take back Oscar. Uh, and this is where the narrator reveals that Oscar was on his way out of town when he was approached by George Sr. And he, you know, he says, you can turn me in for the reward, take care of the family. And of course, Oscar asks why he would do this for him. And he says, because we're brothers. And then I love how, as we get that kind of heartfelt reunion, it then cuts to George shaving Oscar's head and the narrator saying, Later, while George Sr. was shaving his unconscious brother's head, he wondered whether there really was a reward and if there was a way he could get it. Out of that conversation, the only thing that George Sr. did was manage to put the idea in his own head that there was a reward that they could be collecting. Um... Uh, and then obviously he's getting even with his brother, which is, uh, I think, kind of like a, almost a fitting end to this storyline of, of Oscar and Lucille. Like, it has actually driven quite a lot of the George stuff. Like, while he's been in the attic, he's always been getting angry at the fact that Oscar is in his place. Uh, you know, obviously overlooking the fact that, um, you know, he he was in prison, you know, like, he, you know, and then he was on the run and, you know, like... He can't. His anger isn't really justified, but I do like how season two has used that as kind of the the fuel for George Senior, and they kind of pay it off here by him kind of taking revenge. Um, and obviously, the joke of Oscar and George Senior getting mixed up is one that they've used, you know, a number of times throughout season two. And I love how this is the kind of the big payoff to it is the fact that Oscar gets put into prison. Um, you know, and obviously George Senior had a line about how you know Oscar only has that hair because he's had no stress, right? Uh, and that is that is something else that will also get paid off. I I like how we get this final kind of scene between you know we finish the season basically with with Michael and Job together, um, and Michael saying they shouldn't be fighting. You know we can't afford to lose each other, and I, I like that Job goes, I already lost a brother today. And Michael instantly knows that he's talking about Franklin. This this is probably one of like the funniest exchanges between Will Arnett and Jason Bateman as they say these lines where he goes, I didn't lose him, but he's all puckered in Wayne. And I, I love how Jason Bateman goes, On the plus side, you can take him to lunch at the club now. And I just love Will Arnett's kind of crying with laughter as he goes, That's the exact kind of joke he would have loved. And I just love how how... Franklin to Job is a completely separate person and you know that that he has a sense of humor and you know it's just such it's such a beautiful I don't know it's just such it's one of my favorite kind of things about like these two and I'm I you know I've said it before but, but I'll say it here I think Jason Bateman and Will Arnett they play like these these brothers so well uh, and kind of like the timing of that joke is is just one of the kind of ways uh, that they do that. And of course, then, this is where ah, Joe Lynn starts You know singing. it's true. Everything Just as Michael is going, please don't do this. I do it for you. It's just such a great, it's just a great way to kind of like finish the episode. Um, you know, particularly as it kind of, like all the, the kind of stupid little bits and pieces of like Franklin and the CD and all that kind of builds up to this weird little payoff at the end of this episode. Um, between between these two brothers and then we get on the next season of arrested development um and this this is so brilliant because it pays off like a joke from like episode 2 where you know 
Oscar has burned all his fingerprints off on the cornballer. Something, uh-huh. an action that he did earlier in this episode, but obviously the cornballer itself has been, you know, referred to time and time again as being so dangerous. Um, and so he doesn't have any fingerprints. Um, and then, of course, he says, my hair's going to grow back, you'll see. Um, and, you know, obviously, due to the stress of being in prison, Oscar's hair uh, does not grow back. Um, and I I think, actually, the next time we'll see Oscar is not until the end of season three. Um, so, you know, it takes a good few months for him to actually grow his hair back once he gets out of uh, prison. Um, and then, of course... We we see that Tobias's dream, you know, once he's got to Vegas, has already been filled, and the stage manager, played by Andy Samberg, <laughs> tells us that out of nowhere came this guy, and the great thing is he's never out of character, and we just see George, you know, senior painted blue, uh, taking part in the Blue Man Group, and then of course we get a quick cut to two weeks later, you know, with the narrator telling us. It turned out George, you know, George was right about the effects of stress. And Oscar's like, what the hell's happening to me? Why won't it grow back? And that's where we finished the season, which you could say is quite a dark place for the show to kind of like finish the second season with Oscar in prison. Like essentially, you know, an innocent man put in prison, you know, by the machinations of George Sr., who has also stolen, of course, Tobias's uh, dream job. Yes. And so like... You know, if the sh- let's say the show had been cancelled at that point, that would have been a very dark kind of place for the show to finish, with you know Oscar possibly in prison forever. Um, you know, we don't know. We, I mean, obviously George Senior hasn't been convicted of any crimes yet, so you know, obviously there's a chance that George, that Oscar may have got out. But it's it's such a such a kind of odd place for the show to finish the second season. Um, so, is there anything else you think we need to cover in this particular episode? Uh, no, I mean, I would only add that the reason that it sort of ended at 18 was that it was not exactly uh, doing well in this particular Sunday night time slot. They had, had tried to launch it then at Thursday. So they Fox did a bunch of different things. They knew the show was funny. Yeah. They just did not know how to get a mass amount of people to watch it. And in a, a pre-internet binge-watching sort of uh, mentality. It, it was tough to get people to catch up on the show or give the show the chance that it needed and deserved. So they ended it early in order to give other shows a chance in that 9 o'clock slot. I believe this is back when they brought Family Guy back after canceling it and yeah, uh, yeah. renewed it for its third season at 13 episodes. In the hopes that making it a premiere 13-episode series would keep it around and make people uh, more uh, jazzed for it or build anticipation (laughs) for it. But, again, before Netflix, before you could put something out there in a a format that people could binge it and catch up or catch the fever for it in particular. So, it's just one of those shows that's... Was ahead of its time. Well, I think we should go to plugs. <clears throat> yes. Uh, I know you have a podcast to plug. Yes, so I do. If you want to do that. Absolutely. Um, if people would like to join me over at the Kill by Kill podcast, I love it. It is a show that is dedicated to celebrating the least discussed component of any horror film, the characters. We're going through the Friday the 13th series, 
one, uh, you know, hack, slash, and decapitation at, the t at a time, in the hopes that uh, Camper's untimely end is just the beginning of the jokes that we can make about them. At this moment in time, we're, we're making our way through Friday the 13th, the final chapter, uh, which is not the final chapter, because we're about to begin <laughs> the new beginning. <laughs> um, oh, you have to love those 80s, like, horror titles of just just calling something the final chapter when they probably knew they were going to be making another film is just like it feels like such an 80s horror trope of uh you know like kind of horror film subtitling well in, a, in another callback to arrested development you have uh a paramount at the time a, a movie studio that hated the product that it was producing um <laughs> tried to kill it off that the final chapter made so much money that they're like, well, we can't. We'll just suck it up. <laughs> so they they started, and of course, both movies begin with a hockey mask smashing the title of the movie for no particular reason. Uh, a, a movie known for its great explosions, uh, opening with two explosions over and over again. And can we follow you on Twitter? Yes, uh, follow me on Twitter at Kill by Kill Pod. Or uh, you can follow uh, my wife and I are a writing duo, uh, and we work in the industry here on in TV. You can follow us at We Write Good and find out what Great we're doing stuff. on that frame. How we're making ABC uh, Thursday night shows sing in the new year. <laughs> it's just it's fun to put words in the mouth of Kerry Washington and Viola Davis. Like, <laughs> that's not a bad day. Right there. So thanks very much for joining me, Patrick. Thanks so much. I'm so glad to be here. Uh, on the next episode of I've Made a Huge Mistake, um, we're going to be talking about season three. We're going to be talking about the cabin show. Uh, so join me for that. Start of the final season on Fox, but not the final season of this show. Um, so uh, otherwise, thanks for listening and goodbye. Bye. Bye.